0: Hi, Gibson. This podcast is of a conversation you and Megan Grumbling had in mid-January 2020 about her poetry collection, Persephone in the Late Anthropocene, which is based on the ancient myth, but also a telling of climate change. It was a good conversation, and um, it's always nice to have two poets discussing work.
1: Thanks, Rachel. It was great to talk to Megan. The thing I really appreciated about the conversation is that, you know, Megan had done a, a book launch a month or two earlier, and um, that had really focused on performance, and there was music and actors, and Megan saying her poems, which are wonderful and beautiful and provocative. But this was a chance for us just to, to, to talk about craft and how did she put this really strange and interesting book together uh, that draws on this old myth, but also reimagined. It for, for a contemporary age of, of climate change. So it was, it was just a pleasure and a delight to talk to Megan.
0: It was, it was a great conversation and it is such an interesting concept. And I think for anyone reading the book, it will be really nice to have this conversation to sort of measure uh, the book against and sort of dig a little deeper. So um, thanks for, thanks for being involved. It's always great to have you at the Literary Lunch and I hope our audience enjoys it as much as I did.
1: Absolutely, me too.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Rachel Harkness, I'm the Programming Manager of the Portland Public Library. And we're so happy today to be hosting Megan Grumbling in Conversation with Gibson Fay LeBlanc today at our Literary Lunch Series. They'll be discussing Megan's new collection of poems, Persephone in the Late Anthropocene. Uh, and I'd like to thank our sponsors, Longfellow Books, who are selling copies of the book. I'll just introduce the authors and then we'll get started. Megan Grembling's poetry collection, Booker's Point, received the Vassar Miller Prize and the Maine Literary Award for Poetry. And her work has been awarded the Poetry Foundation's Ruth Lilly Fellowship, the Robert Frost Foundation Award, and the Hawthornden Castle Fellowship in Scotland. She teaches at Southern Maine Community College and the University of New England and lives and writes in Portland. And Gibson Fay LeBlanc is a writer, teacher and the executive director of the Maine Writers and Publishers Alliance. His first book of poems, Death of a Ventriloquist won the Vassar Miller Prize and was published in 2012. Gibson served as Portland's fifth poet laureate ending his three-year term in 2018. His projects include written, spoken, wrapped, and a multimedia website aimed at the high school teachers and students interested in writing poetry and Deep Water, a column that features a poem each Sunday in the main Sunday Telegram and now continues with poet Megan Grumbling as editor. So thanks for being here and enjoy.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Rachel, for having us. Uh, This is... uh, such a pleasure to uh, have a chance to talk with megan about her book and uh we were just saying before we started that the the launch of the book um online which was i don't know a while back (laughs) what is time anymore um but uh it was a lovely event and was multimedia reading and video and music and um it was awesome to be there and be a part of it um uh, but this is a chance to to talk one on one, which is a different and, and beautiful thing in a different way. So, Megan, did you want to start with those? Should I start with a question? Or should we do you want to read a poem or two to, to get us going? What do you think?
2: Uh, I can start with a poem. You want me to?
1: Yeah, that'd be great. All
2: right. I'm gonna start with a poem that is early on in the book and starts to kind of set things up. So there are a couple of different voices in the in the book. There's Persephone, of course, her mother Demeter, and then um, kind of a Greek chorus, which is just sort of like us hanging out and watching all this stuff go down. And so this is um, the chorus, and the poem is called Short Shorts. At first it was all beer gardens and orange dreamsicles. She wasn't supposed to be around now. These were her months to be away with him, eating stones and stroking clocks or whatever she did with him. But she had chosen us. And at first it was all holiday, all innocent debauchery whenever she appeared out of season. Here she was in a canary yellow halter dress, opening flows of hoppy ale. Here she was in short shorts, drenching us in dandelion fizz, or with huge buttercups, grazing our chins with yolk gold. We made merry, made noise, made hay, made out like magpies. Then she was gone again. She left us each time with our suddenly bared chins, Sorry, our suddenly bared skin, our yellowed chins, and our chosenness, with our schoolchild sensation of having gotten away with something slight but delicious.
1: Mm, thank you. Yeah, it's good. Better to start with the poem. We gotta we gotta thicken the air with some poetry here. Um, great sounds in that in that. Um, but I want I did want to start at the beginning, and I wanted to ask you. Um, how you started to conceive of this project and you know what some of the first poems were how they you know and just like how did that how did that start to happen for you as you
2: Sure, I actually had the premise in my head for probably like a decade honestly Um, I've always been really interested in the Persephone myth my mom used to read me a beautiful children's book illustrated with these gorgeous ink and watercolor paintings of of the myth and So, and I'm very like um, oriented to the outdoors and the seasons, especially being in Maine. And so as the effects of climate change and climate crisis and the more erratic seasons we've been experiencing have become more tangible, I started thinking about, wow, well, what happens to some of these sort of archetypes and stories? And I I know that not all seasons are the same everywhere. And so there's a particular, but you know, for me, how does the story change? And so I, I kind of made some notes on it for, for years. Like I said, I thought maybe it would be a short film or maybe it would be an essay. And I just would like doodle some notes and nothing ever stuck or seemed like it would work. And then I was actually, I was at Hune Oaks, the artist colony in Lovell, which is the most beautiful residency I've ever been to. And they just started coming out like that prose poem that I just read. It's not lineated, it's just like, looks like a paragraph on the page. And I don't usually write like that as a poet. So it was totally weird and, but fun. It was so fun, these prose poems being the first voices of the book. And it evolved from there. Persephone looks like a poem in the page rather than like a prose poem. Um, She's less pedestrian than the chorus. So it sort of evolved from there, but the prose poems were the first, so. Good yeah, thing I listened to them, because otherwise, who knows?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and at what point did did you hook up with Dennis and like the whole idea of the uh, contemporary opera building that kind of was that did that happen fairly early on as you were starting to write these things? Yeah.
2: Yep, it did. Um Dennis and I had worked on some other projects previously, and there had just been an open call for the Belfast Poetry Festival. Um which does, I don't know if it still does, but has in the past done a lot of really collaborative works with poets and other artists. So I had written like maybe four of the poems at that point. And I asked Dennis if he wanted to do something for the Belfast Poetry Festival. And he was like, sure. And so he wrote, you know, scored them. And we got some actors and a director and went up and did that. And and we, we kind of tacitly, or I guess maybe it wasn't tacit, but we, we agreed that we would continue. I, I had a whole project in mind and we, we just kept going with it. So I really wrote it apace the development of the opera, which is an interesting way to work as a poet, you know?
1: Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned already a little bit, and I, and I I don't want to undersell it because there are a lot of kinds of poems in this book right so there's these these chorus these chorus poems which are prose poems there's demeter's poems there's persephone's poems um they're the aphorisms from the new farmer's almanac there's um these crypto academic study texts that you created that are wonderful um and um i'm curious about like how long did it take you to figure out, they all, uh, they all have different forms, they have different containers. Um, and I'm wondering how long it took you to sort of figure out, okay, this, these, are, these poems are gonna look like this, these are gonna look and sound like that. You know.
2: Well, it's interesting in terms of what they look like because I wasn't thinking about that so hard while the opera was going on mm-hmm. because it would be obvious what the voices were when there are different people delivering them. And it wasn't until I was really putting the manuscript together, well after the opera was done, to see what it was going to be like on the page, that Persephone's on this side of the page and Demeter's kind of in the middle, and da da. da. Um, but but I guess I was thinking as a, more as a storyteller during as I was writing the poems themselves during the opera and its development. So like the we's are very prosaic, <laughs> obviously, and they're kind of like little like kind of schlubby like us and don't know what they're doing so much. So they're very prosy. And then Persephone is much more lyric and epic. And so she has a different sound and she has different lengths of lines um, that reflect that. And Demeter is, Demeter is sort of the storyteller of the, of the whole book in a way. Um, and so she has a particular tone and uh, yeah. So it, it yeah, kind of developed based on the narrative needs of the opera, I guess.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. I was going to say Demeter is like one of the main through lines that kind of helps us, you know, she provides like this some forward momentum about sort of the mystery and what happened and yeah.
2: Right. And she talks directly to us in a way that none of the other voices do exactly with that level of directness.
1: Um, I was also thinking as I was rereading the book about the, um, how, so we get these the first part of the book, the first half, really, where we get these this, these distinct voices talking to us, and we start to put these pieces together about what's happening. Um, and then, um, in the right, right around the middle of the book, though the voices are still discernible from each other, they start to blend together. And I was thinking, in particular, in that that there's a poem called "Too Many Mirrors" right in the middle, which where the where they literally all the voices are in there um or i think or most of them i'm not sure if every single one is but and so i was curious about that movement and like at what point did you realize like oh that that needs to happen like this these this all needs to be contained in you know this is going to be this crossover moment and i was wondering did that come from sort of what you need what needed to happen for the libretto or was that more of a seeing the book as a book and realizing that 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 needed to happen sort of for the arc of the book or both or neither
2: (laughs) (laughs) all of the above no that's a great question and it was as you suggested sort of dictated by the narrative dramatic needs of the libretto um it's like the second act crisis the end of the second act It's, it's the end of the second movement and so everybody's been kind of doing their own thing and like searching for each other or not but kind of on their own and they're there's a you know approaching each other as that as that movement goes on, and then the crisis we we called it the braid as they all approached each other in the like on the stage and um you know that comes with the revel- a big revelation, which is that who that is sort of like the wees are telling all of this like it's just us telling all of this stuff, and the implications of that are kind of scary so so that's the crisis and when, I, when it came time to put it on the page, that was a real, that was the most challenging thing, the braid. Um, and in retrospect, it looks, it's pretty simple solution just to kind of move everything together on the page in that way, but it, I don't know, it really, I had to wrap my brain around it for a while to, to get that dramatic effect down on the page. Um, does that answer your question? Did I skip some part yeah. of that?
1: Yeah, totally, I love that idea of, of the braid. And I mean, we talk about braiding things in poems also right so this is like where these these things overlap
2: yeah Um, the challenge was to to make sure that the voices that we can see that that's what's happening rather than just yeah so
1: right because you don't have those actors on the stage who are showing up showing it to us in that way so you've got to show it with the with the text itself yeah um, which i think it does beautifully another moment which i think is is really um important and um, is, is about three-quarters of the way through the book, um, where we see almost the complete collapse of language and story, and it's kind of a, you talk about, there's some mention in the book of these dead zones, and that's like, I, I think of it as like a linguistic dead zone, you know, like there's just it becomes nearly unintelligible mm-hmm. for just a brief amount of time first, there are, there are moments, there's sort of hints that that's coming. And then it really, it really comes. And, you know, as a poet, putting a book together, that's like, that feels like, to me, like a, a risky thing to do, to, to include a moment like that. And um, I, I was wondering if you could talk about like, why you felt like that needed to be there. I, I, and by the way, I hope it's clear for my question. I absolutely think it does need to be there, but um, I'm not. I'm not upbraiding you for for including it. Um, uh, so I'm I'm curious, just what you're as you like. Like, how far did you you know? How did you know it needed to be there, and and how did you know sort of how far to take it?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it was a lot easier to do this on the stage, as you can imagine. Um, and in a way, it makes it more scary to me. Like it's a scary thing for me, pro- probably obvious, as a writer to have language just drop out like that. Um, and it became scarier to see it on the page and to have to figure out what it what it looks like to have meaning just drop out and have there be these blanks and gibberish. And and I had more of it originally. And I was just like, yeah, and some of my, you probably told me to. <laughs> Gibson looked at a draft of this book early earlier on and you probably told me maybe we don't need so much of that but um somebody did anyway and it is cuz it's a lot to take in it's 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 effort and it's kind of traumatizing i think on some level to to have to look through all that and just ah so there's just that one sort of climax of it and then the wees start getting things they, they turn it around and uh we we get language back and story back and the gods back
1: and it it absolutely feels Necessary to me when that we're sort of, I mean, it's a bit of a punch in the gut, but it's also like we're talking about the collapse of of climate, you know, like, uh, so it feels like, you know, an appropriate one to this reason. Just
2: like, you know, so many of us feel so much grief and guilt, and it's overwhelming when we really stop and understand the enormity of what has gone on and what you know, that our species is implicated in, it's just, it's monstrous. So like, how do we deal with that? And the we's in the book um, deal with it by this kind of withdrawal, like withdrawing from the things that they that they think, well, they do mark them as human, like written language, like the gods, like story, as if everything that makes us human is somehow um, also implicated in everything we have done. So obviously that doesn't work so well for the we's, um, but it's kind of like taking to a logical, absurd and what that looks like when we just, um, when we take our, our guilt of what we've done so much to heart.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really, um, when I was, was reading the, the book again, there's a moment in the poem, uh, what happened that, that really caught me the line in the in the poem, it it says, um, How do you grieve, we might ask, when there is every day more to grieve. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a stunning question for the book, and what this book is about. It also happens to be a stunning question for the moment that we're living in in this year, which has been all about grief for so many folks. Um, And we've been confronted with so many different crises kind of all at once. And, uh, does that strike you now, like with the book in your hand and this moment that we're living in?
2: Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really realize when I was writing it, but it is really a book about grief from almost beginning to end. And um, I had my, some personal reasons to think about that like a couple of years ago and be like, wow. And I read the poems again. I was like, wow, how did, how did Demeter know that? Or how did Persephone know that? Because I didn't know it and I was needed to learn it, you know? And so it's it's like wild. And now in this time, you know, during the launch, I don't know if anyone was there. I teared up for sure when I read some of those ending poems about grief. And, you know, grief is something like grief is another hole in the ground. And what do we do with the hole? And that's the question, right? What do we do with the hole? And um, Demeter says mysteries are the answer. And um, so... Yeah, it's it's still amazing to me that it was like in there for me to write that somehow back when I had no reason to to know, you know.
1: Totally. Well, and I think it's one of those things where the, the poems are smarter than we are and and yeah. they sort of show us where to go sometimes and what Yeah, and, to and be- that
2: they don't really come like who knows where they come from. It's like it really is wild. This book especially it was just so wild in that way.
1: Yeah. Well, and this is like, I mean, talk about your, you know, in terms of like overall project, you're, this is obviously a a connecting to and retelling this very, 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 very old story. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is also obviously still has a lot to to say to us. Right. Right. This second. Yeah
2: yeah I mean about the limits I mean that's what I see it as as a story about ultimately is about limits human limits um seasonal limits but also human limits like we have this time that we're going to be in the dark you know kind of vicariously through Persephone and when we start not when we start putting that out out of balance is when and we start thinking we can have it be light all the time and have all the things out of season that we want all the time. This is when things start to get kind of screwy. Um, so about sort of reestablishing that balance in as much as we can, given the changes that have been made. I think.
1: Um, I also was thinking as I read the book. Um, I was just thinking about this. What a what an amazing trajectory this this book has had. Um, you know, to start with poems, and then it becomes a libretto and a contemporary opera, and gets performed, and there's music and there's all these people who are involved and then we and it goes back to 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 this I should hold it up <laughs> this beautiful book so there's a few parts of this but um as you watch those performances by actors of this work, I wonder if there are certain things that you learned from that like that you that 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 became then part of the book in revision like um did you, you know, did they teach you certain things about the voices or the story that, that sort of helped then as it became a, as you started to think about transforming it again into a book?
2: Right. Um, I think it was more that I, that I had those changes and influences in mind as I wrote because it was like, I wrote the first four poems, and then they were performed, and then I wrote the first movement, and we had a workshop production of just the first movement, and I wrote the second and third movement. So it kind of happened organically as I wrote the actual whole thing. And I think what I learned, I mean, I don't know if any of the actors are on the Zoom, but I sometimes felt so bad for the things I was making them memorize and say. <laughs> like, so I think I learned a lot about, I mean, poetry is supposed to be a spoken art, and it is from way back. And I think this was a good wake-up call and reminder of that for me, like what I was making them put in their mouths and how did it sound and how simply could it come out and be projected and delivered while still conjuring imagery and complexity. And so I think that's, I mean, there's a lot in this book that's very much more complicated than that, but that is not based on the words people held in their mouths. And I so I think I think that's the biggest thing. That I, that I took from, um, as, a, as a lesson, as a writer. Yeah. But what a gift to be able to just, and there's so many other things though that I wouldn't even be able to articulate now about the inflection someone delivered a line with and how that contributed to my sense of the character. Just I could never, I mean, it, it's just so infused. It's, it's like baked into this book, all of those influences of everyone involved in the project. Like so much community is involved in this project.
1: Yeah, totally. That's, that's so apparent. And that is the second part of that, of what I was thinking about with this, with this project, which is, you know, do you, does it, and you're, cause you're somebody who has always written about theater and you have, you've done film and you have lots of interests, although you are most certainly a poet. Um, And so I wondered, does Megan long for more work like this and or like are you are do you feel like oh my gosh can i just be alone in my room and write (laughs) some poems for myself for a little while or you know i I suspect there's a little bit of both but um i'm just like sort of where you know post now that the book is out where you where are you with that
2: Yeah, well, um, as you know, from the, from the launch, that was a real community effort as well, because there were all these multimedia aspects um, with actors and filmmakers and the whole score was recorded So musicians and, um, and I was just dying for that, honestly, especially with all this, like, I was just so thirsty for it. And I, it was, Wonderful to be able to be making a thing with other people like a common purpose and other people's insights and creativity And so I am really I am I want I do want more of it. I really am. I'm thirsty to do more collaborative work Um, Yeah,
1: and there's a there's a I think it's fair to say from what I know about you and your work that there is a like a real strong passion for um, other people's stories Right mm-hmm. as well as obviously I mean you're you certainly are in there as well, but like You know, there's there's a you, I mean i'm thinking of booker and other projects that you've done that really Are in, a, in some ways documenting other stories. Um
2: Yeah, I have there are a couple I have a couple projects like sort of out there that have been in the works for years, but um not underway really And one of them is another myth, it's Narcissus, which Mm -hmm. I think has some pretty interesting (laughs) modern stuff I can play with. So that might be a performance thing or a film thing one of these days. But I do like taking an existing story and then like just kind of holding it up as a prism and seeing what else can we see, what else can we tell. Um, Yeah.
1: That's cool um as i was again rereading um i was also struck by the the hopeful notes that that get struck at the end of this book um in that last section in particular um poems like to the shine and clamor and the life of her um where we really it feels like persephone is like the beating heart of the earth and it's like is she dead? No, actually, she's still alive. Barely, <laughs> but alive. Um, so I, I, do you want to re- maybe read uh, a couple of those from that, from that last section?
2: Yeah. So so yeah, as Gibson says, this is from the, the last part of the book. Um, after all the crazy and the gibberish and the falling away of everything, they turn around. So the life of her. Back above, we were bruised and spent and home was no different. The green crabs, the standing pools. At first, our eyes had trouble readjusting to the light. Every leaf, wing, and limb was sharper, stranger. She was sleeping, drowsing there near the cleft, her cheek pressed against the moss. We gathered, watched her sleep, grew breathless at the slightest tremor of her lips, at her freckles merging in the sun, at each bruise fading gently to yellow, at how she struck a faint tone, a little sharp, a smallest each time she inhaled. She was alive, alive. We spoke the word over and over, the life of her, of every leaf, wing, and limb rose in our chests, caught and wrung in our throats
1: hmm. um, what was hardest about that's a two part question <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, uh, what was what was the hardest part of of you mentioned earlier um with the libretto um, like that sort of realization of like oh i'm putting words in people in in these actors mouths like I, they better be good you know like there there's some more weight there because you're you're seeing that sort of in real mm-hmm. time um, so i'm wondering what what was hardest about the sort of some of the harder moments of of the lib- writing the libretto and then getting it to performance and then alternately uh what was hardest about then the transformation of of this material into a book into mm-hmm. book form
2: yeah I think the hardest part was turning it around, like getting getting the wheeze to turn it around from the second act crisis. And then the third act starts, it's called descent. So it descends and and turning it around just conceptually was, was a real challenge for me. And that's what I spent, I was on residency at the time and everybody was waiting for the second and third movements. And so I had to figure out what was gonna happen, you know? and how I knew it was going to come back, but how, and so that was really difficult, and um, once I, once I got it, I was like, it felt like, it it felt like, not that it would write itself after that, but um, it felt really good to know, sort of, what was the hinge to turn it back around.
1: Um, And what, was that, was that like a, like a craft and technical hinge that you needed to find, or was it like a, Uh, In part like a spiritual hinge like not to you know, I mean like this is like you know It's heavy this environmental (laughs) crisis it weighs on all of us. Right. So
2: totally. Yeah I mean, I think just on a narrative level like what Mm -hmm. what was going to do it? What was because there because there has to be, you know, this is very plot driven which Mm -hmm. poetry isn't necessarily but it was very plot driven which I struggle with plot so like figuring out what are the plot points that, that do that hinge it and the valence starts to become positive and all that. Um, so, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it was going back to the original myth that helps me finally get there. And I, I draw upon some more maybe like uh, obscure aspects of the myth, but they really helped me because they're so weird and interesting and and have so much truth in them. Like the hinge of this book Uh, one of the two has to do with this dirty old woman that's telling dirty jokes. And that's a real thing from the myth. Like I I talk about it in the, in the notes, but there was this old lady that like yelled out swear words as Demeter was wandering around grieving and looking for her kid. And that's what finally made her smile. And that's kind of what, that is what shifted the story for Demeter. And so it was cool to like, cause laughter, right? Like even at the profane, even at the profanity of of it all. It's such a timeless thing and so fun too. So I got to recycle a dirty joke, not dirty in the, like a, not dirty in the sexual sense, but a dirty joke that my dad used to tell me when I was a kid. And so I don't know if he recognizes it, but that's the joke in the book about the smart pills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it works because the smart pill, you know, like and it, it just all came together, smart pills and our big brains that have screwed everything up. And so everything just sort of fell into place once I, once I looked backwards to the original myth. It was a pretty interesting process actually.
1: Yeah, I love that you had to look backward to find that, you know? Um, Yeah, and certainly, again, like, (laughs) we've probably all, you know, in this in this dark year, we've probably all had some moments like that, where we needed a good, (laughs) dirty joke to just get through the day, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, or like, how popular watching the cold open is on SNL or Colbert, or what, like, you know, that stuff is, serves a purpose.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
1: So that was the hardest part of the finding that for the libretto. What about what about for the process of transforming this into a book?
2: Yeah, I think um, I think, like I said, just sort of figuring out how it was going to look on the page in order to try to preserve the movement. And I mean, I really struggle with that at first because it's like you're watching, a, watching it and you get to see the character and hear the intonation of her voice and how do they move? How do they, who crosses whom, touch each other? Like so much stuff is going on dynamically. And I would like look at it on the page and be like, is this gonna do anything on the page? You know, like are the words enough to show the, the distinct voices? How do I move things around so that there's a semblance of movement, physical movement? And it, I mean, I just had to move stuff around on my word processor a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the harder ones, like I was the saying before the braid where they're where all the three voices are coming closer and closer together before they come a, become a singular voice, which they are for the whole for much of the third movement um and then like the hinge point with the dirty joke, like difficult to pull that off on the page too, I think because just like yeah, it's a lot to it's a lot to make happen on the page and i I'm still not sure I'm totally happy with how i how I did that?
1: <laughs> like any, like any writer, we can't, you know, can't, you can't. It's never done, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. You're 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 making notes in the margins as you read the poems, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Luckily, I'll probably never read that poem. I mean, that's the thing is, I'll probably never read a bunch of these poems at a reading, because how would I read that braid unless I had people with me? Um, right. How would I read that poem with the dirty joke, like, and there's different voices and. I'd have to go like this or use a sock puppet. I could use a sock. puppet. <laughs> Two sock puppets. <laughs> <laughs> One on my feet and my cat could walk in. <laughs> like we're still on the zoom. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm also curious about that. Um, that, the the book leaves us the last, that last poem with that, with the funny looking gourd and, um, it, like, where did that come from? Did that is that something that came out of the myth, the, the the deep roots of the myth, or is that some? Did you just like happen upon a funny funny looking gourd?
2: <laughs> no, what? the gourd is from um, the the composer Dennis Nye, was into Buddhism, and um, so he had told me about this this koan: How do you get the goose out of the bottle? Some people might have heard this. You can't break the goose or the bottle, but you have to get the goose out of the bottle. And it's this whole thing. And I was always like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Uh." But um, I grew to like really sort of not really meditate on it, but think about it. And I sort of turned it into gourd because that in a way, the gourd being like our, you know, our gourds, our funny looking gourds. And how do we get them out of the bottle without breaking the bottle or the gourd? So (laughs) it became kind of another thing to... It's almost like colons are weird. They're like, they don't really have an answer in the sense that there's an answer to that question. And I kind of like that too. It's, it's very poetic. It's kind of like a joke and kind of like a riddle and kind of like a, but kind of not any of those things. And the gourd, you know, comes up. It's, it's kind of a, a motif through. And um, so I brought back the gourd again and tried to make something more, more positive out of it. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, as you said, it's it's a it's a it's um it's a wonderful place for this book to end because it doesn't like there's obviously these hopeful notes, but it doesn't like wrap everything up. Oh, good, good, glad that we solved that one. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um
2: Fix that.
1: Yeah. Um, do you? What do you? Would you mind reading that? You want to read one? Oh, more sure.
2: Funny looking gourd. Yeah. This is the very last poem in the book, so. And it's Demeter who's talking. So what happens is she is pulling a new narcissus from a hole. Its root is tough and its hole deep. Grief, you have heard that part. You have heard what kind of story this is. Not a whodunit. What happens is grief shrinks the stomach But finally, grief is just one more hole in the ground. And what do you do with the hole? Mysteries? Yes, maybe. Yes, a mystery could grow out of the ground, out of a hole. Let's say they are, yes, a story. Yes, some part seed, some part fruit. Let's say they are a gourd, a funny looking gourd that you have grown from seed, then kept so long that you can make its own seeds rattle inside. Mysteries are meant to be saved, but also shaken. When you shake those seeds, you can make that gourd clamor. You can make that old gourd rattle something like a song.
1: Lovely. So you mentioned this a little bit, but I'm wondering what's next. What are you working on? What do ah. you like to talk about? You know, a writer's favorite question. No. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I've been working on this long form prose project, actually, that I just put together like a first full draft of. And it's super long and it needs to get cut a lot and it might not be any good. So that's where I'm at with that. I have to figure out if I Keep working on it or not, right? On. But I also have, you know, some other projects that I would like to start. I have this project that's it's about what I call the fallingness, and has something to do with childhood and something to do with grief, I think. But it's like I was thinking it might be fun to collaborate with a an animator or a children's book illustrator and make it be kind of a children's book or children's animation for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, So, if anyone's listening and knows any animators, that would be really fun.
1: Right on, yeah. What were there certain things that you were reading during this? Like, I'm thinking about just like, you know, there's like different kinds of source material. You know, obviously you had the 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 myth itself and like various versions of it from over time. Um, Assuming that was like a big a big part of the source material. This, Mm -hmm. then you've got. you know stuff that's being written about the climate now and projecting into the future yeah. were there other things that you were like listening to or reading at the time of the as this was putting it together obviously it was over a long time but anything you yeah kind of i
2: must have been reading right um yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny i have a, uh have a hard time like nothing is screened to mine as like the thing that was influential reading as i wrote it um, if I sat and thought about it, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll come up with 10 things as soon as I get off the zoom, but um, Yeah, I, I don't know that anything is, is Popping right up as as an influential book that I was reading. Yeah, right now.
1: I mean the, the, the In terms of the story itself, I think it Like the sort of direct influences are are apparent in the book, you know, and in the notes and things that it's drawing on Um I feel like I was
2: probably inspired by some kind of hybrid things, hybrid books um, that, you know, play with different, as you say, containers for the poem. But I just can't off the top of my head remember what they would be right now.
1: Right on. What What about um, what things are getting you through right now? Like what, what are you reading now that's like um, or what are you teaching now that's that's helping helping you and your students, you know? muddle through this time.
2: Um, let's see. Well, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I read the entire Elena Ferrante quartet <laughs> in about a day and a half. No, I'm just kidding. A little longer than that, but it was like, finally, this is the perfect time. <laughs> and I just devoured it. Um, I recently read a book about eels. It was just a nonfiction book about eels and how mysterious they are and how for a long time they thought that eels just like spontaneously generated out of the mud because they couldn't find the reproductive organs of eels because they have these all these life stages. And I learned, I'm telling everybody this because I think it explains a lot about the 20th century, but Freud, when he was like 19, traveled to Italy and um, his job, like for months, all day long, he looked for testicles in eels and never found any. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say.
1: <laughs> and psychoanalysis was built on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, I
2: love yeah, that. it's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> like imitating art or I don't know what that is exactly, biology. <laughs>
1: do do, do you, I know a lot of poets who do, but um do you find yourself like reading a lot of non-fiction like scientific texts, like things that are natural world stuff or
2: sometimes I actually yeah. feel like what I read most is fiction.
1: Hmm. At
2: least over the pandemic, I've been reading a lot of a lot of fiction. I just started, actually, Eula, it's nonfiction, but Eula Biss's new book um, on having and being had, so kind of about capitalism and ownership and sort of a long-form lyric essay kind of thing on that, which is something I think about a lot, ownership and capitalism and what does it mean for me personally, what does it mean for us as a culture, and so she takes it from a very per- personal perspective, and uh, like she had a very bohemian background as a as a young person and she buys a house and then it's like wow I own this house now what what is that all about so I think it's it's an interesting thing to ponder first off
1: yeah, I've heard great things about that book I've heard her talk about it a little bit yeah it sounds it sounds fascinating yeah I think Rachel's might be about to join us here
0: I did. I popped back in. Um, I just—we just have a couple questions, but I just wanted to say thank you both before we do that. That was a great conversation, and so nice to hear you read your work, Megan. Yeah, thank you so much. It's thank so great you. to be here and to get to
2: to get to talk about it. It's such a privilege. Thank you to you and and to the library and to Gibson
0: and to everybody for for coming. Thank you. Um, so we got a a, a question from Erin. Um, she would. Say, she said, would love to hear Megan talk about books, uh, which you just have, been, and specifically poems or other works she's loved lately. What and why? I know you were talking a little bit about the books you're reading, but maybe specifically other poets.
2: Poets that I have read lately. Let's see, like new poets? Any poets. Any poets, all right. Um, I was just, actually, I was just answering some interview questions for uh, for the Cloudy House, and they were asking me about Project books, which this is a project book obviously and they're asking me about other project books that I've loved and one of those that I wrote in my answers was um, To Jess's oleo about um, Minstrelsy in America. Oh, that's one that I should say that was influential about the different containers of forms Gibson because I don't know if anybody's read it, but it's it's a big it's a big large book and he does all kinds of formally Innovative things. Oh, yes, it's so good. Like these syncopated sonnets, which it's like two sonnets next to each other that you can read like as a, each by itself or across or down, and they all work. and they're and not just that they all work, but they're all beautifully written. So I was just so, yeah, so impressed by by these different containers and how he approached this very complicated subject and very fraught subject. Through such a, a prismatic approach like I love that. I love when writers do that um, I also I, another project book. I answered was CD rights one with others Which is about um, she had this mentor named named V by in Arkansas That was a civil rights activist and this really feisty White lady that got run out of town eventually but so and and, and she passed away and so CD right kind of went back and Went back to the town and remembered things and listened to transcripts and found advertisements from the time and all kinds of stuff and it's again like a very prismatic sort of oral history approach to this to this portrait of this woman who was so influential to her um uh, an old friend of mine ara ross wrote a book about um it's called seed lip and sweet apple and it's about mother ann lee she actually came, years, years ago, she came here to Maine to research at the Shaker Village in Grand New Gloucester and sort of the origins and uh, again, a portrait of Mother Ann Lee and of her, her time and using inventories and lyric poems and just all kinds of, again, like a really beautiful prismatic approach to this very complex person. So those are a few that I love.
0: That's great. That, um, and Becca linked a few of those titles in the in the chat for people that want to look them up and perhaps borrow them or buy them. Um, this one came early on in the conversation. So it's a, it's sort of referencing a, an earlier um, questioning line, but uh, this is from Les. Aren't mysteries the stuff in the crucible that spawns the future? Possibly a better one. And then he follows that up by saying, scientifically, we call this deterministic chaos whoa I'm glad I don't have to answer that but (laughs) is that a question (laughs) maybe that's a comment
2: we um wow deterministic chaos I don't know how to respond to that (laughs) we can leave it as a
0: thought as well I love it I'm gonna look that up though yeah um I think that's all we had in the chat uh, Zoom. So I mean, there's a couple more minutes if people want to chat, but um, I will uh, just say, Megan. Also, I meant to say in the beginning, your website is so full and updated of of your work. It's a huge resource, I think. So if anyone's interested in finding out more about um, what you're doing, uh, there's a lot there, and some of the. Um, uh, Videos from this book and other projects are on there as well. It looks. Oh
2: like. yeah, and I should also say that if anyone's interested in hearing the score that accompanied the original opera, we recorded it this summer safely with masks and isolation booths at Acadia Recording Company. And so that's all. I don't think I've linked to it yet on my website, but um, I'll put something up there. You can find it at Bandcamp if you Google Dennis Nye and Bandcamp. Um, it's all on there, all three movements. No words, so you don't have to be distracted by the words. You can just enjoy the music.
0: That's great. I think we will link that right underneath this video on our website. So oh,
2: great. That'd be lovely.
0: That. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that. And I should also
2: plug, um, I don't know if this will be ever open to the public um, at this point. Juncture, but there's an exhibit that I'm co-curating with Jenna Crowder opening I think at the end of the week or maybe early next week at the University of New England's Ketchum Gallery. So that's it's the library. It's the library gallery if anyone's familiar with campus. Um, lots of glass and so it's kind of a, um, a response and conversation with this text. There'll be a couple palms on the walls printed and mounted, and there are also new paintings by Patrick Corrigan, who responded to the text, and um, Hannah Secord Wade, who lives up near Bath. Um, We'll also have some of the scores printed and mounted, so it's kind of like another polyphonic approach to this climate crisis question, and how do we respond to it? What are different ways of telling our way through it, and hopefully beyond it? So if anyone, there will be a, a virtual tour that people will be able to experience, since right now the campus is not open to the public, unfortunately. But if it does open, if, if we all, if everything gets back to normal by May, then um, maybe we can be there together on the campus.
0: But anyway, you can check that out
2: at the UNE uh, website.
0: Um, that's super exciting. I, and I'm so glad that you said next week rather than three months from now because I can't wait to check that out. So I, I think we'll put a link to that virtual tour when we get one um, on our website too. Um, so, in the meantime, it doesn't look like any other questions have come back, but thank you. Thank you both again so much. That was a great conversation and lovely to start our year out with poetry and. Um, we'll see everyone really soon virtually at least <laughs> thank you so much really lovely
2: to be with you all and great questions gibson as always lovely conversation so i'm wishing everybody well and 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 stay safe and stay happy